This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, if you want to support this show, you need to go and catch the great people at Bella Catering on their website and order up. If you're in the Sydney area, order up and cater for any events, any get-togethers, any catch-ups you are now allowed to have face-to-face with your friends and family. And while we're teetering on the edge of what we can and can't have at home, why stress yourself out with cooking? Just let Bella Catering do it. They're the best. They have a great team. They're great people. They're great friends of the show, and they're great friends of mine in my personal life. And uh, I'd appreciate if you check them out. They've been a great support for the show. Now, this is a massive week. We have had revelations in the news. It feels like it's been five news cycles since the last time we talked. We have a massive lineup of guests, and you're going to get these guests thick and fast this week. I cannot wait to share them with you. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We also have a Patreon, Patreon forward slash One Heat Minute. Bonus shows, shout outs. But now, let's get to all the president's minutes for this week. Everybody, it's one You got to have the music, you got to have the actors, you got to have the right story. I'm not a great fan of directors. I think they're wildly overrated, but they're very helpful. And very, I mean, they're obviously, I mean, my hero is Ingmar Bergman who, and Billy Wilder, who are great, great, great directors, as well as great writers. But two of the best people ever for me, George Ray Hill and Elia Kazan, said the same thing to me. They said, the first day of rehearsal, your fate is sealed, by which they meant... If you have cast it properly, if you have cast the crew properly, if you've got the right cameraman and the right editor and the right this and and you've got the right script, you have a chance for something of quality. If you've made a crucial mistake in any of those phases, you may have a hit, but it won't be very good. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. It has been a rare and splendid occasion to get repeat guests on this show um, because for anyone who listened to our last major minute-by-minute analysis, we did have a a regular gang of folk who popped back in and out to help us along that incredible journey. But All the President's Minutes has been, I think, objectively amazing with the incredible lineup of guests that we've had along the way. And by just some pure poetry, this guest, who guested multiple times on those projects and came back on the 91st minute of one heat minute is now back for the 92nd minute of all the president's minutes. Um, he's literally one of my favorite voices in film. You don't get to see him right enough about it. Um, he's kind of been doing the thing since it's been done in this country and is now really like, I, I, I'm not just saying this. He's an essential worker in the news uh, media <laughs> industry in this country. Um, and so he's an essential voice for me to talk to again. He's a dear friend. He has the enduring best movie podcast that has come out of this country, Hellas for Hyphenates. Uh, and I love talking to him. And so now, of course, as the uber William Goldman fan that he is, um, any any shot that I can get him in a Bradley scene felt like it would be what I should do as his friend um, who runs this show. And I'm my own producer, so I get to just decide who the hell goes where. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome the awesome Lee Zachariah back to All the President's Minutes. Mate, welcome back. Great to oh, see your face. Thank you. It's great to see yours too. And I don't even want to talk after that intro because all <laughs> I can do is disappoint after that <laughs> sterling introduction. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. And look, you know, uh, th- if I can do anything, it is to play a hype man 
to my guests. Because <laughs> when I choose the great guests to talk to me on these crazy projects and people are so generous with their time, at the very least I can do is hype you up and tell people why I wanted you on the show. And multiple times, no doubt. But funnily enough, when I was lining it up, I was like, shit, Lee was on. Lee and the awesome Paul Anthony Nelson were on for the 91st minute of heat. Come on, did some great dueling impressions in that. And now you've got this, you know, sensational minute right in the hour and a half mark as well in all the president's men. It's awesome. That's lovely symmetry. I, I didn't yeah. know that before until you just said it a moment ago. But uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. If I was George Lucas, I would say it's poetry. It rhymes, you know, <laughs> like uh, I would I would do that. But, mate, welcome back. Shit, the last, time, the last time that we spoke on this show was the seventh episode. The country yep. was on fire. Um, we were talking about um, – you know, a political malfeasance and irresponsibility uh, in our own prime minister at the time, uh, vacationing in Hawaii whilst the country was burning. Um, lots of things happened to help restore and recover um, during that time, despite the colossal loss. We were sort of in a tailspin as a country coming out and the media, you yourself, we were, we were in those crazy times. You were mm. traveling through my state into your home state um, through fire, <laughs> through yeah. hellfire to get home. And we were checking in with each other. We finally get to chat then. And this colossal year of 2020, which we had talked about, oh, this is a great idea because it's leading up to an election year. And it feels like there's a lot of symmetry with that. But could we have ever imagined talking really like 80 some odd episodes ago that now 7th of September the amount of shit has happened in this year, 2020, the year of our, the year of our Lord, 2020. Like it, it, for you, it must be unfathomable on the daily. It, it sort of is. It's a little bit, it's hard to say. Cause I was, um, around the time we last spoke, I was in the process of booking in a holiday across Asia and I canceled it. Cause I could kind of see, I'd read a little bit about, the the coronavirus it wasn't even called COVID nineteen at the time, and I was like, um, this is going to be bigger than I think people realize. And I cancelled uh, my holiday, considered another one to Iceland in September. Like literally right <laughs> now, I was supposed to be in Iceland, and immediately next day, and everyone was saying, "What the hell are you doing?" And I was like, "I don't think inter international travel is going to be around come September." And they all thought I was mad, and uh, I, I I'm sorry to say that uh, I am mad, but. Also, you know, it all came to be. So I had an inkling, but it's like you can't even if someone presents to you this thing and says there is this. And this is also a metaphor for politics and everything. Trump, Nixon, all of it. Someone presents to you a little piece of evidence that says this is how bad it's going to get. Intellectually, you can get it. But until you live through it, it's just, you know, you have no conception of what it's going to be like. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm coming to you from stage four lockdown in Melbourne, as I yeah. say that, which, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 I, I get sad. I've been sad this month for that very reason, for the travel reason, because mm. this was a time of year that I'd talked to my wife, like way back in Jan, I reckon around the time that you were here going, you know, I would really like to go to LA. What's a good time to go to LA? And I was looking at, you know, tail end of summer. It's very hot there right now. And usually September's really sweltering hot. And actually, because it's so damn hot, the prices to fly over to LA are cheaper. And so I was right. like, yep, this is going to be my month, month or two in maybe month or two uh, uh, window of going over to like LA and then New York City to catch up with all the amazing folk who I've spoken to mm. remotely over the last few years. And now that we're here, I'm just like, 
I'm so glad I'm not one of those poor people who like booked things and is now like unable to recoup funds or whatever the case may be. Or like, oh, or, it, it, it could crazy. be worse. You could be in LA. I was messaging a friend there today and she was like, I've never seen it three digits before. And I was like, God, I hope she's talking Fahrenheit. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. it's pretty bad there at the moment. It's, yeah, just yeah. insane numbers. In in Palm in Palm Springs, I think it was 118 degrees Fahrenheit. Let's do a mm. let's because I don't know what that is off the top of my head. 118 Fahrenheit to self. 50, 47. Sure. You are right. You 47 degrees in Palm Springs, and overnight, just the temperature dipped down to a balmy 37 and hung around there. Man, that's uh, that was Bring a secret. That was Sydney in January temperatures, man. Yeah. At my place in the nighttime when it just was not cooling down. But um, yeah, look, it's an unbelievable year. And this movie has gone from uh, a commentary that uh, feels like a uh, feels like it's a direct dialogue with what's happening now to just a pure fantasy in the fast that American politics has become. And and you, you, we've been told, we've been lied to as movie fans forever that when these colossal uh, universal enemies come, that we are going to unite in solidarity for the human race and come together. And instead, like, it could not be more fractured, even on a state-by-state, country-by-country, region-by-region basis. It's just unbelievable. I've learned more about human nature in the last nine months than I have in my entire life. And nothing I learned is good. So, uh, that's a, that's a cheery thought for you. Oh my uh, God. It's, it's, it's yeah. Re- really crazy times, really crazy times, especially, I mean, I feel like we, we in Australia have been very lucky at the, the extremity of the behavior, but you know, mm. I, I never thought before this year, we'd say things like, you know, um, I'd be having a talk with my wife at the front door and just being like, if there's a fight at our local supermarket, just leave the trolley if it's full. Like I would like, I stopped letting her take the kids. Obviously she'd go masked up and all those things that you do mm. to protect yourself. And I'm like, if there's a fight, cause we were watching videos pop up on social media at our locals supermarkets where people were fighting over goods. And it's like, if there's a fight, just leave like yeah. that, you know, crazy stuff, crazy stuff. Yeah, totally. Well, let's go back to 1976 let's. and let's, let's uh, get into the room after one of the greatest double takes in the history of Hollywood cinema. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a Republican. Let's get in the room with Slippery Hugh Sloan. Um, uh, that was dubbed by the great Kelsey Ford, who's an editor at Bright Wall Room, who dubbed him that in the last episode. We are right in the middle of a conversation with these, these three guys. We then dive into an editorial conversation with Howard and Harry and Bradley and the boys. Um, Lee and I are going to watch that together now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. I don't know how, how did you, when you handed out the money, how did that work exactly? Badly. No, I think what Bob means is that ordinarily what was the procedure? Routine, I'd call, I'd call John Mitchell over at the Justice Department. He'd say, go ahead, give out the money. This was all done verbally? Yes. Okay, we know there were five men who control the slush fund at Creek. Mitchell, Stans, and McGruder. Yeah, those three we've got, and all three have been named by two sources. What about the editor? Combat. We're pretty sure of combat. Maybe a better way to get all five, huh? Certain on Mitchell? We know that he approved payments to Liddy while he was attorney general. 
You got more than one source. Yes, Harry, I said who are they? Sloan. Sloan and who else? And there's another guy at Justice who so far won't confirm the names of the other two who control the fund that we're working on. Right, deep throat. He's not a source on this. Look, do any of them have an axe? No. Personal, political, sexual? Is there anything at all on Mitchell? No. Then can we use the names? No. Love it. Love so to good. see it. Love to see it. Um, there's a, uh, there's a line I've repeated and a few guys are going to get sick of listening to it at the moment, but I just love it is Sydney Lumet talks about editing saying it's a real choice to ratchet up tension and you have to use editing so sparingly. And a couple of the contexts I've used it is the speed with which a dialogue conversation where the, where the boys are strategizing in the wake of the bookkeeper scene with one another and the speed of the editing picks up. Yep. <coughs> Excuse me. But the one thing that I love so much is that in a very steadily edited scene we get one up close edit with sloan which says uh, with this was all done verbally and you watch him lie the camera goes in on him in a close-up a mid mm. mid midi close-up to watch him lie to say yes it was all done verbally but we know that the committee to re-elect the president at this point has been burning papers and i just it's just an editorial touch in that scene that you never, I don't know what it is, but you like cognitively never remember that it happens. And now scrutinizing this whole sequence and these minutes for all of the conversations that we're having, when that cut goes to his face, I just go, you now slippery SOB. And then we get straight into the mix. Our boy Bradley, his hands on his mm. head. It's just, a, it's a wonderful scene. Tell me, tell me all of the feelings you have about it, my friend. Oh, I have so many. I wasn't actually going to talk about this, but you just saying that made me think about um, the banality of, I mean, I, uh, what Hannah Arendt called the banana, banality of evil, and I think you can extrapolate that out to um, the the banality of, of revelations, of these bombastic, you know, this is one of the big moments where they learn something big and it pushes them forward, it propels them into the next thing. And that's how it's just a few guys in a room talking and trying to clarify what happened and then later deciding if it was big enough. You don't always recognise those moments when you're in it. Um, you're absolutely right about, you know, the the, the tension and the, the the choice of shots. It's interesting because last time I was thinking about how I talked so much about um, Pakula and I didn't talk about Goldman all that much. I did a little bit. Um, but I'm like, why didn't I talk about the greatest, one of the greatest screenwriters of all time when his name is on one of the greatest written films of all time? I thought, that's it. You know, if, 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 if I do get to come back, I'm going to talk about Goldman, except I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to tell you why, because I had this plan. I um, I almost fetishized the idea of uh, my my two favorite screenplays. I later discovered were written by brothers. Uh, one is All the President's Men by William Goldman, and the other is A Lion in Winter by James Goldman. Um, they're a set of brothers. They both won Oscars uh, <laughs> for those screenplays. Um, and it's, it's remarkable. And the two, the two films couldn't be more different. You know, um, uh, all the president's men is as close to the idea of a, a screenplay as a blueprint for a movie, um, as you can get just, just, just the absolute necessary information, no embellishment at all. A line in winter is almost the exact opposite. Every line is quotable and stylized. It's just, it's, it's <laughs> dripping with affectation in a way that all the president's men is not. And I kept thinking about, um, you know, David Chase, uh, the the genius behind Sopranos, um, said something I could not fundamentally disagree with more, which is that, um, like, he hated West Wing. And uh, he said, you can't like the Sopranos and the West Wing. They're too different. 
I don't believe anyone liked both of them. Uh, well, I'm sure none of that was bitterness over the fact that West Wing kept beating it for Emmys. I'm sure it was uh, nothing to do with that. But complete, kept, complete objectivity. Exactly. And I kept thinking about, hang on a sec, I don't just like Italian food. I'm not going to go out and have Italian food. I want Japanese and then I want Mexican. And, you know, the I, who, who lives their life with one flavor or texture? It's just, it, it's, it's crazy to me that, how you can close yourself off to the, uh, I don't know, the breadth of human experience. There's so many things and they're all so different and they're all so interesting. And I was going to talk about that, except I can't because, <laughs> um, because William Goldman didn't really write all the president's men. I mean, he wrote some of it. He wrote, he wrote a draft he, of it. He, he wrote, he wrote according to the boffins at, yeah. Uh, the screen the screenwriters guild he wrote let's just say comfortably 85 percent of it interesting okay because i was uh, i i saw redford say he wrote 10 percent of it yes and i and i went okay let's go looking for something that disputes that yeah and okay you clearly found it i did and I, i've been sort of going back and forth i was thinking about what um Alex Ross Perry said on the show uh, a few episodes back about something being very un-William Goldman. He breaks his own rules. I'm thinking, is that him breaking his own rules? Because there was the the Nora Ephron and <laughs> draft and then Redford threw that out and then did his own. And okay, maybe 85%. You know, that would delight me because even though Goldman famously didn't like all the presidents, many didn't like his experience on it. I don't think he much liked the finished product. You know, you still want to believe that, I don't know. I think the, I, I think th this is what is devastating. This is where I'm going to reassure you okay. that your two favorite films are written by brothers, <laughs> right? Uh, yep. in, and and that couldn't be more different from one another. Is that there are probably so many things that uh, Mr. Pacula himself helped the actors, uh, like say differently or underwrite, you know, just rewrite on the fly in or take a take where they sort of slightly change the wording, etc. And there's also so many examples in the performance of Redford and Hoffman from a certain point in the film, learning each other's lines so that the different characters could speak over one another. So if you looked at the script in any given day, sometimes it might say Wilbur Bernstein, Wilbur Bernstein, and they might've just jumbled the whole thing up. So therefore in some way, shape or form, it's been rewritten. However, okay. there was, famously a conflict between the producer and star of the film, Robert Redford and Goldman and they're clashing about the script and them wanting Goldman to be a part of this constant evolution of rewrite and tweaks and taking out and adjusting and withholding and changing which character said, which part of which line that's not his style. Mm. Some screenwriters are that style and others are not like, I think a contemporary screenwriter and filmmaker, someone like Chris McQuarrie, He's a guy who just knows that the process is a constant rewrite. Like he'll have a script that he writes based on, you know, he even talks about the mission movies. He, he writes the script based on the locations and then he has to constantly rewrite if parts of the script don't work because they have to change things. But he was just never a part of that. And so then there was this whole revisionist history from Redford himself saying that we basically rewrote the script. And William Goldman is a fastidious screenwriter indeed because he dated all of his drafts of the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And so... Goldman's final draft <coughs> is almost exactly what you see on screen. 
there, but what is different is that there are so many things that are organically altered characters say different lines. There are a few additions, but the foundational elements of the script, especially the quintessential concepts of following the money and those Mm. things, um, they're all interesting. It's interesting because I I looked at the, um, I keep thinking of those little embellishments, those little lines that sort of, you know, spin, spin, spin uh, greatness into perfection. And one of them is, you know, uh, the, the, the right before this scene when they're walking up the path and Bernstein says all these little neat little houses and all these nice little streets, it's hard to believe there's something wrong with some of those little houses. And Woodward says, no, it isn't. And I, and I look at that and I go, Okay, and I actually went, you know, I couldn't find that in the in the March draft or in the May draft. And I kept looking at it going, is that, was that just added in ADR? Can we see their faces? Are they just walking away and they came up with a it's line? ADR. Right, that, that line is ADR. Oh, that's ADR, yeah. Okay, interesting. And do we know where that came from? Again, these are the these are the additions and the, the things that Redford and Hoffman right. talked about the embellishments that they made or the things that they added or those like touches. And yeah. this is why the argument even started as to who has the, I guess the, 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 the primary contributing author fact is that there are so many of these little lines, these little throwaways, these little organic touches that happen in the evolution of the rehearsal and then the script itself and the dialogue. Right. But the structure is Goldman. The, the 90% of the dialogue that yeah, happens yeah. in the film is Goldman. And it's just, it's it's where there were opportunities for embellishment and alteration and evolution. They took it. They took liberties. I was I was really curious as to whether a line like that and that there's there's a certain poetry to that 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 felt at odds with the naturalness of the film, which I'm totally fine with. I love yes. I love those little tweaks. But I was wondering if it, that it happened like purely by coincidence. This week, I happened to watch. Because uh, I'm a party animal, you know this about me. I watched the two Lyndon Johnson biopics that came out in 2016 this week. Okay. I watched them like back to back. So uh, hold on, wait. Correct me if I'm wrong. One's with Cranston. Yep, Brian Cranston. That's all the way. All the way. And Jay Roach. And the other is LBJ, directed by Rob Reiner with Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. They both came out in 2016. And it was interesting watching them back to back because they both had the same moments and the same lines, uh, but remixed into, in, in, into, into a different scene. You know, you, you see these same moments, like, you know, the fact that he'd make people take meetings with him while he was on the can. It's on the toilet. Yeah. Yep. He, the language he'd use with his, with his personal tailor, you'd, you'd see those moments transported that those moments are factual, but they're transported into a, t- into a moment where like, when when did uh, when did Bernstein uh, discover that Woodward was a Republican? Was it that scene, or did they just decide to place it there because it's the most dramatically interesting place to put it? Um, I, I know I'm straying from my minute, but I just wanted to. Uh... You're, you know the rules. You're allowed to sl- cheat slightly. Okay. I'll let I'll let I'll let you cheat slightly on that before we yeah. get back to our minute. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was just I, I just uh, watching the LBJ films i it, it sort of made me think a little bit about all the president's men and how much you know this truth isn't the same as fact in fact isn't the same as truth and sometimes they intersect beautifully and i keep thinking about that republican line which probably didn't happen in that moment but would have happened at a moment i'm sure bernstein did a double take yeah i mean absolutely and i think you like you're you know let's let's not beat around the bush here you're a screenwriter yourself 
So you would know I that. Try, I tried to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I would imagine that, you know, you've worked on a short film, but just imagine the alchemy of talent to be the screenwriter when Pakula is directing. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Got this horrible dry cough and it's not Corona, but it's annoying as hell when I'm doing podcasts. Um, so imagine you're the screenwriter. Pakula's directing. You've got Gordon Willis, the, one of the greatest cinematographers who's ever lived, is the guy who's lensing the film for you. You've got just absolutely unbelievable and unfathomably good set dressing and design. Mm. You've got this cachet of some of the greatest actors who've ever worked. Your script is going to be their, their shining light, but they're good enough that in the moment, even the dramatic choice to have two actors know each other's lines to interrupt one another is such a dynamic choice for a director because if you know what the script is and you've got a script advisor or you've got the guy who's written the thing being you the screenwriter on set watching the thing watching the scenes unfold and people interrupting and going back and forth and clunky falling over sentences with one another and then sort of coming up with what's going to be said it creates a much more dynamic relationship with the script and the shooting Mm. and the tension of the whole experience so for me it's like this movie does not work unless goldman's brain of how to solve problems of like what to focus on and what to strip away and what scenes are still important that doesn't work even if you have the efron scene that slightly expands the data scene and even if you have these guys changing that dialogue if you don't have the structure of these two guys and that essence like he figured out the essence of what investigative journalism in the political realm is like and since then in a in a popular movie that lots of people went to see now journalists who are working today, even you would go follow the money. That wasn't a thing that journalists just knew how to encapsulate in three words. That was a screenwriter who saw through the problems of what are these guys actually doing? They're following the money. Hmm. Mm. So, so I don't think in my mind, the more I've read about it and, I've read probably every now conceivable article on this and the different internet boffin versions and the theories and the, all the president's men revisited and all those things, the revisionist history. William Goldman deserved his Oscar. Oh, is look, what I, is what I'm I would delighted. Say. I'm delighted that, uh, that is the conclusion of the boffining. Uh. That's that, that's like, that's what it's. And in, and in this scene, you know, that, that double take, um, Liz Hanna, who is one of the co-writers on the post and wrote the story of the post mm. only on this show actually realized that she was stealing from this movie for her movie, the long shot when, um, uh, uh, when is it? Oh my God. What's his name is, uh, ice cube son. Uh, oh. Seth Rogen's double take when, um, uh, when, uh, ice cube son, who's the, he, his best mate in that movie says that I'm a Republican and Seth Rogen does this like mad That's double right. take. I just watched that recently. I... And she's, and she's like, I think I stole this from all the president's men when I wrote that script. Wow. <laughs> I didn't even click on that. I said, I said, I think you did too. And she goes, that's how much I love this movie. <laughs> wow. So this scene, slippery Sloan, mm. that beautiful editorial choice as they're ratcheting that up. How does this play as a as a strategic journalism scene for you now before we jump into that editorial meeting with the boys? <laughs> yeah. Um it's it's hard to 
the type of journalism I do is is so far removed from what <laughs> what what they do. I, I've certainly had my moments where I've been on the phone trying to get the truth out of someone. Um, not on anywhere near the same scale. I didn't bring down a presidency before you uh, before you asked. <laughs> um, it was like very minor stakes, but I but yeah, it's it it, it is very. No, I, I didn't actually think about it from from a journalistic. I, I, I want to just ask. I want to just ask you this in a dial in a conversation dialogue. It's like there's one thing that's been brought up is like the levels of manipulation, and I guess in some of the people who are, and I've kind of come around on Sloan because the more that I view this scene, my personal opinion is that like it's such an amazingly put together scene because of how evasive he is in contrast with his wife, who's like, this is an honest house. Yep. And so it's like so many, so many times I've kind of listened to that great performance and listened to that line and, and gone, yep. Okay. This isn't, you know, I I've, I've listened to that. This is an honest house from, uh, from Meredith Baxter and said, you know, that's what it is. But when I watch that scene now, I go, this guy knows that he's complicit in mm. many respects to all of the bad behavior, which is probably why his wife was able to influence him in the moment. So that whole thing of like Woodward and Bernstein potentially manipulating a source for an answer, I'm like, I'm completely okay. I'm less okay with the manipulation of the bookkeeper and I'm way more okay with them manipulating <laughs> Stone because I feel like it's, you are already playing a game of manipulation and evasion right now. You're out because you feel like if you distance yourself and enough, then you're going to show that you weren't involved. And clearly everything about the, especially the latter part of this dialogue, I'm like, he is involved. So like, does it feel manipulating to you? Is it just tactics or is it tradecraft? Like, what is it? Cause I kind of feel like it's like essential manipulation in a, in a way. It, it, it is. And I, I think, I think there's a, tr a truth to the idea that, you know, what they show in this film is that everyone kind of does want to talk to a journalist regardless of your level of guilt um yes. i was you, you know you've got the the woman who just turns out to be a republican donor who, oh, she's who she's a literal she, literal red herring in the movie and I, I was reading i can't remember when i read this one to be a year or so ago a year or two ago when um uh woodward had the book out about trump and there was some talk about how the hell did he get ever everyone knows who woodward is why would they all talk to him yes and He's very apparently he has this 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 great way of suggesting to everyone he talks to that uh, their colleague has just told him a story, and if they want their version of the story in, they'd better talk to him. Otherwise, it's it's your opponent who's you know and and someone else a, gets to write someone else gets to write your story for exactly, you exactly exactly, and it's and. You know, there's something quite interesting about the fact that they get into this scene where he says it's for his own good. And she says, <laughs> no, it isn't. And he goes, no, it isn't. And in such a Redford, beautifully Redford way. Um, and it's almost that moment of honesty. That's his shibboleth to get into the house is that moment of honesty is this is not for your benefit. And once once they all acknowledge that, that they, they almost have permission to tease the facts out of him. Yeah, and 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 I love that he says it to her, and she gives, and mm. and that's also his like in the background. That's his endorsement for him to come in. Yeah, and that's her endorsement that's for him at the same time. It's that's like, it. yep, send him in. There's um, yeah, it, it really is. It's a beautiful moment. There's there's another part that I hadn't actually. 
there's another layer to this that I hadn't noticed uh, before. And it's something that Isaac Butler alluded to a couple of episodes ago. It's, it's Stephen Collins. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a great performance in this scene, but, um, you know, Stephen Collins is a sexual abuser. He, yes, he abused multiple underage girls. And, and this in part came out because his therapy session was recorded and leaked to the press. And he was then, you know, had felt he had no choice but to come clean. And I was looking at the dates of when it all happened. And at least one of the assaults happened uh, prior to the filming of this scene. And then many took place afterwards. And and without even intending to, I was watching his face during this scene and thinking, is there any moment while you're filming a scene about people being too scared to come forward about a crime, what are you thinking? You know, you went on to commit multiple offences after this. You know, I I wonder if in the back of his head he's thinking, yeah, most of the time people are too scared to come forward. It's it's a, it's a really unpleasant layer. It's an unpleasant reading of – it's not even a reading of the scene. Uh, it's just something that I just wanted to acknowledge because, you know, we – we're finding out so many things about people who are in great works, you know, who have some connection to a great work of art. And I don't think we've entirely figured out how to come to terms with that. And, and the, watching that scene and just knowing, knowing that about him now and the sort of, I don't know, the, the, there is a temptation. I've, I've just, you know, given into it to, to have this sort of metatextual reading of it and thinking you're a guy who's done bad things and, people are too afraid to come forward and um and and you can you know i it's <clears throat> i feel like i would reel you in if i think it was a completely out of line reading but the challenge of it is is that people protecting themselves from from hard truths mm-hmm. that make them look bad is one of the you know which in some way, shape or form, lots of actors have to do in their lives and in their careers. They do things that they don't want to do. I think that Pakula's craft as a director, exact extracting performances out of people, maybe sort of started to see this intuitively protective and weird. Maybe that was something that, 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 that Stephen Collins couldn't bury the lead on. Like if you've got such an intuitive filmmaker as Pakula who can watch people and, 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 feel like the emotions that they're conveying underneath are doing a lot of the speaking for the words that they're saying, then if this guy's already a bit of an evasive and a bit of a secretive guy and he's got that, which you can see totally in this performance, because usually it's a scene that, you know, no offense to Collins, but it glances off of him because in my mind that Goldman, that quintessential Goldman dialogue and the repartee is how the boys are interacting with each other to get the information out of him. And he's just like playing laconic and, you know, cards close to his chest. Mm. And all you want to do, your eyes just want to go back to the boys in the same frame talking and Redford doing the hand gestures. Oh, one up higher, whatever. Yeah, and Hoffman yeah. smoking again, as always, you know, the person who makes me want to smoke more than the person ever who's ever lived. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think it's in, a wrong reading in that there's something probably in it that is feeding that engine of evasion. Yeah. And, and, but also to, to your point, it's really, really hard to go in that moment. It's like, there's no way really that you would think that Pakula, <clears throat> excuse me, that Pakula or anyone who was casting the movie would know this stuff has happened. And so if they don't know any of it's happened, they're just going, Oh, look at this guy. He can access some weird evasive mm. part and be authentic about that sort of evasiveness. You know, it's, it's a really weird thing, but I'm glad that, you know, uh, 
it's something you got to talk about. You know, I've talked about it in a couple of other scenes in a roundabout way without sort of engaging with it directly, but it is yeah. something in the year of 2020 that, you know, the year of the receipt, um, you know, like, you know, those receipts are coming back, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a little bit of behind the magic of all the presidents. It's Manola Dargis and her episode and I, she jumped off the call um, faster than we probably wanted to end the episode because Harvey Weinstein had been convicted. Wow. And so, you know, at the time, the culture section was coming to terms with that and the fact that he was, you know, was he actually going to be convicted? And she said, oh, you know, she sort of wrote to me in a chat before we jumped off the, before we jumped off of our recording, I need to go because Harvey Weinstein's been convicted. So we ended the recording. And <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, I, I think it's, we have to acknowledge it. If anything, yeah, we have to acknowledge it's, it. It's, yeah. It, and, it, and it's an interesting one because I don't think he's, he's certainly not as high profile. And, uh, and it happened if you like it, But Stephen Collins' revelations about his career came out when he was really best known for being the dad, the priest dad on Seventh Heaven. Like that's what became even more, it sort of became that weird, like life imitates art entanglement of a, you know, someone who was a practicing person of faith Mm. that was being entangled up into child abuse. And that happened, seems like, what's it, like, Excuse me, like five years ago? Did that did that actually get yeah, ten years uh, ago? Somewhere between those. I, I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, it was about five to ten years ago that that all that sort of came out, I believe. Um, so yeah, like well, in advance of the meet, like in advance of the crux of the Me Too movement and those things, like getting yeah. significant momentum because all that's kind of like 2016 onwards. So yeah, he sort of was a precursor. So he's missed it, but missed or at least missed that scrutiny and missed the social media scrutiny that he would have certainly gotten now if you know seventh heaven was a primetime tv show and things like that because you know there's been lots of that but you know it's a it's a nonetheless it's a weird it's a weird blemish because you don't like engaging with it right but yeah it's time, almost it, it it's it, it's almost better that you don't really like him that he's he's creepy like it'd be really hard if he was playing the lead yeah. in this film just just to bring it back to like how we engage with the art um and i'm not gonna say it's you know i don't mean this is it's oh isn't it great that he's playing you know a shady character because it's not none of this is 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 great but it is i don't know it affected all 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 i'm really coming back to is the fact that it it affected my viewing this time when i hadn't quite put those pieces together in the past and it would and it, it would and it will yeah you know there there are definitely those things and you know this is the other thing um i just read uh Sam Wasman's incredible book, uh, The Big Goodbye, which is a charting the story of Chinatown. Hmm. Um, and I actually had spoken, strangely enough, to a work colleague who saw Chinatown and was like, yeah, it's a great film. Uh, you know, she was less enamored with it. She was like, it's a great film, but, you know, that, like that Polanski guy's a bit messed up, you know, or, you know, the stories about Polanski and, hmm. you know, and, and, and things like that. And I just said, I, I said, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I wholeheartedly agree, and I, and I can't dispute it. I said, but I, I just freshly read Sam Wasman's book. So I'm like, but it's a, the whole thing's weird. I go, this is a guy, you just have to remember that he was a European guy who, whose family, some members of his family were killed in the Nazi purge of Jewish people during the Holocaust. He then c- comes to America to make films. He's 
madly in love and his wife is brutally murdered while he's overseas with his unborn child, whatever you say about the relationship, then the media, because the media sensationalized it at the time that he was potentially a suspect or had something to do with it. And that affected him. And then finally the Manson stuff and then all of that. And it seems to be like a tipping point. And then he makes this movie. And in my mind, it's like, it's, it's, it's problematic. Like whatever your, but <clears throat> excuse me, whatever your opinion of Polanski is, and much the same as like all the president's men, I think in the topic that we're saying, like you might have a questionable thing, but like in my mind, you can't cancel Chinatown. You can't retroactively cancel one of the greatest pieces of American art. You can have problems with it. You can put a big question mark on some of the people who are involved in it because I would imagine now in almost any production that has ever come out of Hollywood based on the last couple of years, they might have some people with some sketchy past who've done some weird shit who are involved in it. Um, but you can't cancel you can't cancel the art. You just have to contend with it. You have to say, do what we're doing right now in this moment and go, it might make you read this scene weirdly. It might make you do weird things in your brain, whether you want to or not. It's like, no, I, I can't help that now when I look at this, I don't want to, these are the scenes I don't really want to talk about. Like, I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk about Stephen Collins. I could care less. I'm just going to call him Slippery Sloan because that's <laughs> what he is. And right now I'm going to dismiss the backstory as much as possible and focus on the thing. But I get why people are like, I don't, I can't do this reading of the film or I can't, mm. or I can't, you know, engage with it because it's just challenging. But in the end, I'm like, there's certain things that will endure over the, the sketchy people who are involved in it. And then, but to your point, he's a side character. Might be harder for some people to come to terms with a Polanski movie because, you know, I, I think he's a deplorable human being and I won't watch any of his movies as he's a director. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. The, the, we can have a difference of opinion, but you can't cancel Chinatown is in my mind. I'm like, you can't maybe cancel all of his other movies, but in my mind, I'm like, can't cancel Chinatown. Like it's Chinatown. You can't like, it's, it's maybe the best American movie almost ever made. And I'm doing a podcast minute by minute on all the president's men right now. But I would say, you know, as far as canonically great films, like Chinatown's got to be right up there. So it's, 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 yeah, it's, 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 I think it's yucky feeling, but also Hannah Gadsby, you know, fellow Aussie talked about, you know, in televisual arts, we've had a lot of trouble coming to terms with the people who sometimes produce our art as shitbags. Mm. And she's like, in the fine arts for the longest time, we have not canceled great works of art because artists are shitbags. It's like, it's kind of almost just like we've decided that all artists are shitbags. So we just look at the art and we take the art for what it is and in the style that it is and the time that it's come from and the, and then we might dive into the artist and then the weirdness just becomes part of the story. Like, isn't it weird that this, it almost becomes like outsider art where like criminals do art. It's like, it, it just changes the classification, but it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't dismiss the art entirely. Yeah. Yeah. It's look, it, it's, you know, it's certainly not a conversation that we're going to stop having because it's, no. No. It, it's a difficult one. And I would say it's the, it's the most significant conversation that's ever been attached to Stephen Collins' name <laughs> yeah. uh, about art. I don't think anyone's tied uh, great cinematic works to his name uh, <laughs> as much as we just have. Um, but anyway, yeah, look, it's it was a weird – I wasn't expecting to sort of note that, but it was something I wanted to bring up just because it was, it was hard to shake once I was sort of putting yeah. those things together. It's, uh, it's, and it's I was one quite... of those things you can't unsee, man. Once you've seen it, it's like, it's there. It's part of the way you read the movie. And it was, and I got to be honest, I'm, I'm quite relieved that in the middle of my minute, there's a, there's a scene shift. Uh, yeah. To, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To, you get, to, uh, yeah. You get ben to Bradley. dive, you get to dive straight into the beautiful 
mug of Jason Robards with his hands on his head and like some of the greatest character actor faces of all time with Jack Walden and Martin Balsam and, and, and the two, you know, the two beauties, the thoroughbreds of Hoffman and, and Redford looking just amazing at the peak of their career, Hoffman with the hair, Redford with the corduroy. I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) it's, it's, it's it's as good as it gets. It is. And it's, yeah, it's, it's glorious to see those, those five actors in a scene together. It's, um, and the process of just, you know, it, it really is a seminal film about journalism because the, the conversations you would imagine people would have in, in retrospect, uh, not not to steal from too many of your previous guests, and I've actually forgotten who made this point, but um, it, it might have been um, Alex Ross Perry talking about Three Days of the Condor mm. and about how... Um, about the, the moment when Redford says, uh, you know, of course they'll believe me. I'll just tell them the truth. And, <laughs> and of course that's not how, you know, all the president's men shows you that you can un- unravel this huge conspiracy. And I'll be like, but do we have, do we have all the names? How, what, what are your sources like? Do they, do they have an accent? Does your source have an accent? Um, <laughs> maybe we should hold off until we know everything. You know, it's just, it's so mundane and banal in the process of uncovering this 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 massive conspiracy it's just it's the work and uh it's it's so interesting and and once you hit that conversations once you hit the revelations that they then demand have you have you confirmed it with four other sources Mm. and they're like four like do you know how hard it was to just get one person on the record to even etch this sketch before we start to like you know line it all up and and get the scaffolding around it and that's what i love as well is like is is also that it's that same instinct or inkling that you talked about that the real Bob Woodward scratches on his interview subjects, which is we know that this is the story. Can you confirm that becomes a much easier dialogue for people? Like we, yep. we know that you've got this, can you confirm this? And so it's, it's now, it's now one of those things. And also um, it's one of the first times that you start to see leverage in a real traditional sense of like, do they have a kink? Do we have someone who can, we can lean on them. And what they're basically saying is we're going to expose them for something that we know, you know, we're going to be, we're either going to show reporting restraint or we're going to get leverage on someone to try and convince them that, you know, if they contribute to this story, we'll keep that other thing under wraps or something like that. It's, it's just, you know, but it happens in a fly by fly by the seat of the pants moment. It doesn't really like, it doesn't have a real exclamation point. It's just kind of like it happens and they just move on. And yeah, it's just, it's a, it's brilliant. And isn't it interesting? We're talking about this the same week as, I know it's it's always dangerous to talk about um, things that happen in. I think last time we were talking about you know Trump's about to plunge the world into you know the US into war with Iran, and that feels like a million scandals ago. I barely remember uh. that, but um, it isn't interesting that um, the uh, oh, was it the Atlantic? The did Atlantic. They, did, did an yeah, article, did, yeah, yeah, the big story about what Trump really thinks of the military, which should come as absolutely no surprise to anyone who's read anything about Trump. Um, of course, he has complete disdain for them, but just count the sources. And then you look at, you know, all these other places backing up reporting through their sources. Fox News confirmed this, you know, multiple sources. You know, it's not just one guy came and told us this. It's a lot of people were there in the room and reported on it. And it looks like that may move the needle 
Um, I, you know, it's too early to say. I may be jinxing it. No, it's, it's 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 fu- it's funny. I, there's a terrific comedian who I recommend. He's absolutely not to everyone's taste. Partially more the reason that I I really love him. He's a guy named Tim Dillon. If you've never heard of him, he has a terrific podcast called The Tim Dillon Show. And on his recent episode, he was like, "Is anyone surprised?" And he has like a he has a mixed audience of conspiracy theorists, right wingers, left wingers. He's got a very eclectic, weird, freaky audience. And he's but he's just like, "Is anyone surprised, left or right, that Trump doesn't get?" why someone would go into the military. He goes, I don't get it. He goes, and, and people don't get why I'd want to be a comedian. Hey, he, and he, he explained it in these terms. He's like, hey, what if I was a comedian and I told you that I'm going to go and be a comedian and for at least a decade, I'm going to be completely broke. I'm going to sleep on people's couches. I'm going to go out there and, and because I just feel like I have a calling to be on stage and maybe I'll monetize it and maybe that at the end of that 10 years, I can market myself and not get canceled and, and you know, maybe have a show like I've got mm-hmm. now, right? And he's like, Trump wouldn't understand a calling. Like someone going, I. he's like, it's like a policeman. Someone wants to be in the military or a policeman. They feel a calling. There is something that they want to do. Like, he's like, I'm not, I'm not discounting that there are the sociopaths who join any profession. He's like, but for the most part, it's people who have a genuine calling. He's like, try explain that to a trust fund kid. Like try explain a calling to a guy who, who's like, oh, you're a sucker. You're not getting paid. Like he's, he's never doing a business deal that is going to risk his life for not like, you know, less than a squillion dollars, you know? So he doesn't get it. But, and some people are like, oh, can you believe that he would say this stuff? Yes, because he would never understand self-sacrifice or a calling or patriotism. Everything's money and status and all those things. And so it's really funny that like, and I agree with you, it's, it's so funny what actually sticks and moves the line in a bipartisan sense because we haven't really seen like both sides of the political aisle in a chorus going, this is messed up. The yeah. right side beginning with was like they had unnamed sources and then everyone started verifying multi sources on both sides. And it's like, Oh, this is actually significant. I mean, it's all about moving his base and sources almost don't mean what they used to, you know, there isn't the trust of journalism that I guess there used to be. Um, you, you know, sources are questioned in a way that they, you know, may not have been in the past. Yes. Um, so it's yeah, it, it, yeah. It's just it, it's it's interesting to watch a scene like that this week, not even yeah. this year, <laughs> just this week, and see a, a, a multiple trusted anonymous sources gonna gonna shift this thing. Are they gonna shift a president out of the White House? Are they gonna contribute to that in some small way? Is it journalists saying, you know, essentially saying to their readers? I can't tell you who they are, but you have to trust me that I'm going to verify that these people are are on the level. They were in the room. They know what's happening. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's a very interesting time to watch this film. I know we said that at the start of the year because it was an election year, but it's just it's getting crazier. I mean, look, it's getting crazier is probably the message for this whole episode and this show. Um, because we're now at the 92nd episode. By the time you guys are listening to this, it'll be a Wednesday in Australia. By the time you guys are listening to this episode, Lee and I are recording on a Monday, so it is fresh, hot off the press um, that you're going to be hearing it. And, you know, by the time you've listened to it, there's probably, you know, around 40 episodes to go with the show. 
Um, and there'll so, also have been forty scandals between. Monday, <laughs> so you won't even remember the Atlantic story. <laughs> I, I mean, when you go back and you hear the evolution of even just the Black Lives Matter protests, and then this scandal, and then this fire, and then this almost going to war with North Korea, and the Iran, Iran scandals, it like. I mean, this is going to be such a fascinating time capsule because in my head, in the last show, when I now watch, when I now watch Heat, I hear your voice included in a chorus of internal voices that happen in my head when I'm engaging with that movie. And I feel like I've got a whole cinema worth of like my nearest and dearest favorite voices talking about movies, my favorite movie in my head as I'm talking about it. It's like a schizophrenic, but a joyous experience. When I watch Presidents right now and I'm going through this, it is, it is like a 2020, like it's like a supercharged dose of 2020 because it's like the unfathomable fire to now, like, you know, between here and a, you know, rock and a hard place, but between here and a fire, it's like, it just never, never stops. So mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. No, and, and what are you talking about? You're one of the greats. <laughs> oh. I haven't forgotten just because you haven't done really many episodes or any episodes of Hell is Five and it's in 2020 and it feels like it's been 25 years it's and we've all got more. It's feel, <laughs> it feels longer than it is. Um, you know, you're still you. Um, we still love you. I still love you. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Please um, take care in the last few weeks of lockdown. It's all been worth it. Um, uh, I know that for whatever... Uh, uh, Murdoch newspapers are shellacking at uh, your local government support. For the most part, it's all been done to protect you guys and, and do it safely, and it sucks. But look, just in all honesty, for everyone who's listening, um, Tenet kind of sucked anyway, so there's not really much playing at the cinemas. Um, <laughs> and uh, so you're not missing I out I remember there. cinemas. <laughs> One day you'll go. Um, but yeah, look, much love to you and uh, take care, and thanks so much for doing the show. Thanks, man. Much love to you, and uh, yeah, talk to you soon. Ah, oh, isn't he the best? Lee Zachariah, one of the greats. You can find him on Twitter at, at Lee Zachariah, Z-A-C-H-A-R-I-A-H. Um, he's currently producing at The Project TV, uh, which is one of the best current affairs shows on Aussie TV. Um, uh, Lee, always a fun follow and a great mind and a screenwriter and a writer of all awesome sort of film analysis over the years. One of my faves and hell is for hyphen. It's truly one of the great podcasts. Lee, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Guys, thank you for listening. All the president's men, you can find us on, oh, sorry, all the president's minutes rather. You can find us on Twitter at ATPM pod. You can find me, Blake Howard at one Blake minute on Instagram and Twitter and one heat minute.com. If you want to email us mail at one heat minute. And if you've got a little bit of extra scratch, Patreon forward slash one heat minute. Lots of bonus extras for your patronage. And finally, if you don't have the scratch, times are tough, I get it. Retweet, share, let people know about us. Talk to you soon.